You know, at this time, if you're part of the junior high or uh, the high school, you're free to take off to your own programming. Thank you guys for being here. Um, real quick, as they're going, wanna, I want to remind you, this is that PG-13 level. If you want one of your students to stay and hear that because you've already engaged in that conversation about sex with them, then feel free uh, to invite them to stick around. But otherwise, uh, they can take off. Uh, we're also coming up on our holiday time period. We're looking at Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter right around this corner. So really encourage you guys, if you're part of our church and you think of this as your home, you would take this opportunity to consider where you might fit in this sense of ministry here at the church and volunteering. So I want to give you guys that heads up. But more importantly, as I dive in here, is I'm speaking to singles this morning. And that, and some of you guys, most of you probably in this room are not single. And so you're going, why would I want to listen to this? Because we need to encourage our brothers and sisters who are single and our, our children who probably are single in their life in this area of sex. And so we want to be able to have an understanding where we're going. But for all of you who are single and here today, yeah, maybe you're single because of divorce, because you're a young adult, because it's just marriage hasn't happened for you, or you're a widow or widower, um, you know, there's a large range of issues going on here. I can't unpack everything, and so I'm asking for your grace, because I'm, um, you know, I'm not, a, not an expert on singleness, and I don't purport to be, but I want to aim you at some information from Scripture on how that works. And so maybe you're in the camp that, hey, I'm really kind of a, you, you have your opinions about how sex works and what it should be like and freedoms and stuff like that. Maybe you feel toler tolerance is a big deal for you. I just ask that, you know, we've had some people get up and leave in the last week. And so just kind of encourage you that if you're in those camps to, to kind of, oh, I guess, practice what you preach, you know, uh, be tolerant from the perspective you're going to hear here and uh, entertain that and think through it as we dive in. But we're going to dive in. And so let's do that together with prayer first. Would you join with me? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are um, not afraid to tackle any topic in your word, any subject that humanity needs to know about life. And so help those in this room who are singles to kind of dive into this conversation, understand what it is that they are, uh, what they've been called to, and God, that you'd give them power to do so as we uh, work through this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the interesting pieces that I've run across as I've been inter, uh, talking to various single people and reading articles on singleness is just kind of the apparent struggles that many married people forget that goes on. For example, after a long, hard, hard day of work, many singles go home and what, what, they don't have anybody to share the laundry detail, the, uh, the you know, vacuuming of the home, the cleaning of the dishes, the working through all the mess of the house. They have to do that all by themselves and they dive back into that. In fact, many people have reported that when they're sick, they're, they're reminded that oftentimes our singles are mobile, they don't live near their families, and so when they're sick, they find themselves alone, and they find themselves in need of support and help, and so they've got to get up with the flu and make their own food, and sometimes they go to their cupboard, and they forgot to go to the grocery store that week because they were so busy, and they're just in the middle of the mess, and this kind of known life of singles exists in our culture. It's tough, it's difficult, and yet it's glorified more and more in our current culture, so much so that a lot of people are like, dude, singleness is way better than married life. Less people are getting married. More people are getting married later in life. And in fact, what they're saying is singleness has this great benefit and that's why it's worth all the trouble. And that benefit is sex. And that's what we're hearing from our culture right now. The benefit is this ability to go out, have as much sex with whoever you want and multiple partners, variety, all this stuff, swinging, hookups, you name it. It's all this stuff that you have the ability to enjoy as a single person that married people who are monogamous with one person they're not allowed to. And this is really the setup our culture gives us. And so it's fascinating as we dive in, because what happens is as I talk about this subject, I feel like what I'm having to do is in, reintroduce us to what the benefit of being single really is. 
Because if it's not sex, what is it? Because it's very clear scripturally as we begin referencing last week that sex is not for singles. And we'll talk about why it harms life in a second. But because it really does become a harm. We, We saw that. Marriage came first, and therefore sex came from marriage. That God designed marriage into the warp and woof of creation, and involved in that boundaries are these passions and these desires for sex. Now, what happens then is there's this other stuff that goes on as desires are unleashed from marriage in the fall toward whatever we desire, whatever we want. Now, Scripture has a name for that, and it's not the same. And it's not the same as sex. In fact, we differentiated between two different kinds of things: one sexual immorality and one is sex. And so Paul, who was a single man, by the way, gets into detail about this stuff in a book called 1 Corinthians. And so while you open there, let me tell you a little bit about uh, 1 Corinthians in this city called Corinth. It's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. It's a section of scripture he's going to deal with all kinds of stuff. We'll reference this quite a bit over the next couple of weeks. And um, he's detailing out a conversation about the freedom of a Christian, in a sense. You see, Corinth was the uh, Las Vegas of their time period. What happened in Corinth? Stayed in Corinth, that kind of reality. In fact, Corinth was the place that invented the concept, hey, a, a woman for, a woman for pro- having, or, oh, sorry, a wife for having children, a mistress for having uh, love, and boys for fun. That was literally the, the slogan of Corinth, of Corinth, all dealing with sex. And even us were like, wow, that's a little extreme. But that, this is the place they're living in. To, call, to be known as a Corinthian was to be known as a temple prostitute. That's the idea in this city. These people were steeped in this outward expression of sexual desire and using it in all kinds of stuff. Well, the gospel came by Paul into this town, this city, and just exploded on the scene. People were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, having their lives changed, getting ready to, you know, getting, getting the reality that they could go to heaven. They were excited about this, but all these slogans started to appear because they felt like, hey, they can do whatever they want. In fact, that's what Paul kind of levels at here in verse 12 in this chapter 6. This was the slogan they were using, hey, all things are lawful for me. And he reminds them, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I'm not going to be addicted to anything. I'm not going to be controlled by anything is this idea. And so he goes in. He says, so this was another one. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. See, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, the, the Corinthians had a weird idea given to them from Plato. Plato, we all know that, that, that philosopher, you know, is a... Is this, is this man who spoke about the realities of philosophy. And he claimed that, look, your body is a, just a cage. It, it's captured your soul and it's corrupt and messed up. And only until you're released from your cage can you be free in the truest sense. And so they viewed the body as kind of this mess. Well, there were views that rose up from that that basically created this idea that if you're, you could do whatever you wanted with your body because it wouldn't touch your soul. Your soul was free. Your soul was clear. But your body was, was whatever you wanted it to be, to do. And so food for the body. But he says, hold on, time out. I need to tell you something. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's an interesting word. This word sexual immorality actually is some, it, it means, is the word pornea. And it means sex outside of marriage. Summed up in this term is this idea of any kind of sex beyond the marriage boundaries. So we're going to not use the word sexual immorality because I really want to differentiate like the Bible does of these two ideas. You have this thing called sex, which was in marriage, and this thing called pornea, which is an interesting term. If you look at it, you can see two English words. The first word is 
porneia or forne, fornication. That's where the term comes from, is this word, porneia, and it meant sex outside of marriage. The second terminology is pornography. We know that terminology fairly well in our culture now, but that's where the other root for this verb or this word. And so when we read this, he says this. If you want to look back down at, your, at the Bible, it says, the body is not meant for porneia, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, speaking of the resurrection in the last days. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take them and be a member and take the members of Christ and make them, a, make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Notice he attacks directly Plato's thought right there. They're saying, hey, it doesn't matter if I join my body to something else. It's just my body. It says, hold on, time out. You're connecting soul to soul. You're connecting person to person. It's not so much that you're just one flesh. You're becoming one person here. Just as you become one spirit with Christ. So when you connect this person who's a Christian, connect with Christ to a prostitute, you are connecting their lives together. This isn't how it should be. This is why you need, as he goes on, to flee sexual immorality. He goes on, he says, this is not to be, or do you not know the one who's joined a prostitute becomes joined to the, to, with her? And he goes on then, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from pornea. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person, the one who practices pornea, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body as you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your body's not yours. This is really steep Christian theology when it's talking about this, but it applies directly to singles because in this is he is saying, listen, you can mess a lot of stuff up messing around with pornea. And just quickly, because I don't have a lot of time to flesh out all this stuff. First, pornea harms God's purpose for you. He's literally telling you God has a purpose for you. He's bought your body with a price. He's aimed you in a direction. He has done a great work to bring you to the knowledge of him. Pornea messes that up. And this is obvious, right? You take a pastor who suddenly sins sexually and we, boom, take him out of the way. That guy's a hypocrite. Well, it's no different for a Christian. I heard a pastor once give this illustration. I think it works really well. Imagine you sit down at a restaurant and you're sitting across from your friend and he comes and sits down and he says, hey man, we haven't eaten in a long time, but guess what? And you're like, what? I become a vegetarian. I'm like, huh, what made you decide that? You have a conversation about it. It's really interesting. You're like, oh, okay, well, what are we going to order then? This is, I don't know about this restaurant we're at. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to get the burger. You mean the veggie burger? No, no, no. I love ground beef, man. That stuff's good. What, what, what form of vegetarian are you? Oh, I'm an open vegetarian. I'm free with my vegetarianism. I can do whatever I really want, eat whatever I want, because, you know, it's really not a restriction to me. That's just a label. See, many Christians want to run around and say, hey, I'm just a, I'm a Christian, but I'm free to do whatever I want. And we open our doors and say, I can do any kind of sexuality I want because, hey, I'm free. No, 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 that's the same problem. There's a restriction that comes along with being a Christian. You've been bought with a price. God's Lord of our sexuality, and it messes up our purpose. We become hypocrites. Our Christianity just becomes a label we slap on whatever we want. 
And that's not what the Bible's getting. He's saying, listen, it just really messes stuff up. It messes up God's design for sex. Two people coming together to become intimate. Suddenly you're trying to be intimate. And what they're discovering scientifically is that the more people sleep with other people, the more it tears the bond of the ability to create intimacy physically. There's literally a chemical reaction that occurs when two people have sex, heightened the most in your first occurrence, and it's intended to bond you to your mate. But what occurs is that if you just go around hookup culture, that stuff gets less and less sticky and takes a long time to recover. And so it injures this design of marriage and sex. But more importantly for those of you who are single is, is apart from this, is really diving into this conversation of how pornea harms relationships in general. Here in this text, we see all kinds of situations where it's harming our relationship with God. It causes, you know, why would you put the members of Christ, which is an image of the church together, linked with a prostitute? It's harming these relationships. We've seen this in a lot of interesting ways here uh, recently in our culture. You see, sex becomes about what we can get, as we said, not about what we give. So I've had really interesting conversations with young men about pornography who feel like that it's not making them selfish. And I'm going, they're like, well, look, I can, I can recognize a beautiful woman and I enjoy looking at her beauty. I'm like, yeah, sure, nice way to put it, buddy. But the uh, reality is that you don't have to get to know her. You don't have to take her on any dates. You didn't have to relate to her and get to know who she is. You didn't have to deal with her sinfulness and her ugliness in order to get to this place of intimacy. What you're telling me is you can go, hmm, thanks, next, hmm, thanks, next. Well, how more, much more selfish is that? Let alone also there's been large swaths of erotica that's been forming, whether it's Fifty Shades of Grey or et cetera, them and calling women deeper and deeper into this stuff. And the dangers behind that is it builds this concept, this fantasy life of what a relationship and sexual relationship should look like, if not pushing it into the more perverted and disgusting portions of life. That's not what God's called Christians to, but it begins to really harm relationships because now even within your, your dating situations, you're wondering, well, who is this person? What do they want? In fact, singles ministries across America have been decimated because of the reality of pornea. The more the culture's imbibed in it, the less sure a woman is when a man approaches her what his intent is. Do you notice that? Ladies are unclear whether he's coming to advance sexual desire or just to get to know you. Platonic relationships are dissolving so much so that we have to actually form friend apps in order to help people know what their opinion, what their, whether they want to be a friend or not. And believe me, that's just going to be another route for some people to use it for hookup situations outside of the other apps that are already available. The reality that we're staring at here then is that friendships are beginning to dissolve because it's beginning to get so centered and focused on self and it starts to harm this reality of even male-to-male relationships. Think about it. Imagine I'm sitting down at a meal, same guy, vegetarian dude, and uh, having this conversation with him. And he's, you know, he looks good, dressed well. I'm, I'm trying to dress well. I'm sitting there and we're having a good conversation. People are walking by us as we're kind of leaning in, having a conversation. And they overhear him say, dude, I love you. What would you think about that? What would they think about that? Let alone when people open up the scriptures and they read a verse like this in the book of 2 Samuel. It says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Let's be honest. How many of you heard a homosexual statement there? Raise your hand. It's okay. Be honest. That's what you heard. Okay, not not a ton of you. The rest of you are liars. The, uh, The reality, and here's how I know that. 
Say that to your friend in public, guys. Do it. Your love is better to me than women. <laughs> what, what, what is our culture thinking right now? It's clear that masculine friendships are extremely in danger because of the playing around in porneo. You don't know what relationships are anymore. And when it's been unleashed from God's intention, it harms all forms of relationship. In fact, many singles are taking too long in their dating relationships because they've had sex with that person and they continue in abusive and dangerous situations when they should have gotten out. It's proven they will date longer than they should. In fact, some will marry people they shouldn't because they had sex and it leads to dangerous problems. Sex bonds you. That's God's purpose for it. So it's really difficult to make a good, solid decision about what to do. And as this hookup culture continues to go on, more people are feeling more abused and used and destroyed by this reality. See, relationships are primary target when we imbibe in this pornea. In fact, the biggest danger is that pornea can consume and control you ultimately. If it can become an addiction. We know about sex addiction. We know about pornography addiction and how rampant it's becoming in our culture. In fact, Jesus had warned us about it. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices, that means um, in, on, intentionally and regularly practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin has a powerful ability to enslave us. It's a powerful ability to make us desire it, even though it may cause us to feel guilty, shameful, and destroyed. Every time we finish, we go away and it's like it yanks the chain and yanks you back. When you're in those cases of addiction and situations where it's pulled you under, guys, that's why I'm warning you right at the beginning, just don't go there. As much as the culture wants to tell you, this is the benefit of sex and, and singleness. Man, enjoy it. He's saying, Christ has been telling us over, no, I'm trying to protect you. I want to provide you a great life. You say, but okay, Greg, if I'm not supposed to have sex as a single person, that's not the fringe benefit. What am I supposed to do? What is the benefit? What's the point? Well, some of those benefits comes from just where you're at. The wonderful ability that you are freer than a married person, to be quite honest, in some ways. Yeah, you have your own difficulties, just as marriage has its difficulties. And, and we want to kind of tease out some of this. But to begin with, the single is able to make intimate friendships very easily, but not sexual ones. See, what we've done is we've taken the intimate friendships and said they're sexual. No, intimate friendships are lost. They need to be grown. They need to be fostered. They need to be built. In fact, the church is supposed to be the location of these intimate friendships. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, it puts it this way. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. See, he's saying, we should see and view each other as brothers and sisters, as family members. That's the most intimate in the ancient world you can get. Even marriages weren't as close as you were to your brothers and sisters. And besides, all of us know the you factor when you put the word sex and sister or brother together. That's just horrible. You don't do that. And that's how we treat one another in the church. We should be brothers and sisters to each other, caring for one another, ministering to each other's needs, giving to each other, building intimate friendships, being vulnerable, but not being physically intimate. This is difficult because we've lost friendships. Timothy Keller in an, an, a very excellent message on friendships. And I point you guys to that. If you can, if you can go on to his website at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York, he 
He speaks of this idea of friendship, and he says, look, all friendships, according to the philosophers, was built not on eros, not on this sexual love, but on phileo, which is this intimate bond in a sense of bonding over a common area. You both see the thing in the same way, and so you suddenly have a commonality, and you both attack a problem in the same way that you want to do it. Guess what? Everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, has a bond, men and women alike, and that is we see that Christ is our Lord, and he saved us from sin. That we can build a relationship based on a unifying factor of Jesus Christ himself. Because we can go to any church around the world that has a true Christian and you have a commonality. No matter your language, no matter your culture. And that's the beauty of what we have and what we receive. And so when we see this, we're supposed to begin there. Build these bonds of friendship off of this. And from there, I think we need to advance into a whole understanding of what a, a robust friendship looks like, what robust friends do for each other. And the best way that was given to me, it was, uh, it was uh, this, I got this idea of the clock from, from seminary. Very important idea that's, that's been helpful for me because I've always thought about it and tried to figure out how to do it. But the clock is important because what it does is it, you can imagine each of these people, all 12 are, are people in your life, should be friends of some kind. The top three are, should be the, the one, the 12, or the 11, 12, and one should be mentors. Talk about something we lack in our society, amen? Who has a good mentor who is wise and understands where life is going? Maybe you have a mentor for your work. Good. You should continue to do that. They help you go further, faster. They build into your life. You should have a mentor for your, your personal life, somebody who is walking you and pointing out garbage in your life, who's more mature than you, gone. Maybe they've been single longer than you. Maybe it's a married person in your life also who's willing to point out things in your life about your personality or whatever. These people are there. They act as, what we've done is we just replace these with counselors in a lot of cases. Sometimes we need counselors, but what we need are mentors, men and women who have gone before us who are willing to pour back into our lives. And you need a good three of them. Now, what happens is most of us, then we, we don't fill those up. In fact, what we do is we fill up our whole circle with a bunch of people who are honestly, they're kind of our projects, our friends that need, because they need us. They call us and we're, we're there for them and you're trying to help them out. Maybe they're your old buddies from your past before you became a Christian. And what they're doing is they're dragging you down. But what you should have are really six peers, six people who are kind of in the same place of life as you, walking in the same direction with the same commonalities, driving you forward. When you have that kind of people around you, you feel empowered. You have guys who are have girls who are working on the same project with you. I remember that in college for me. Um, when I, I, I was in college, just broken up with a long-term girlfriend, and I was just fighting this pornea stuff. It was in the time period before filters were around, back when the internet was exploding and nobody thought, oh, pornographers will use this. And so kids and young college guys and girls were free to look at anything because there was nothing blocking it anymore. And so in this time period, I had friends and I gathered these friends around me and we, it was our specific purpose. Not only did we all love Christ, but it was to walk in a manner trying to be you know, holy and pure. And we fought and we fought together and it was hard. But you know what? These friends I still could call today. We've been bound together as peers. When, even though they live on the, in other parts of the United States at this point, they are my peers and they've been the sustenance in many ways. And my friends today continue to be that from, in many ways. And so you need to have these peers. But the bottom three, you need to have people you're bringing up. Maybe you're bringing them to Christ. Maybe you're just discipling them. They're your, you're the mentor to them. And when you fill in this entire clock, what you have is a robust community surrounding you. 
And then one of the biggest problems that happens for singles is they pour themselves into work or they pour themselves into other things and they become lonely when they're home. And so the life becomes a distraction to a loneliness instead of an ability to build up a strong, robust community. And let's be honest, because singles ministries have been turned into meat markets and decimated by the idea that we, everybody's hunting for sex, you can't have that robust clock full, filled up at a church. Where do you go then? You gotta go to the bars? Well, that's not gonna help. The dance clubs? And that's why I really want to encourage those of you who are in that position of singleness to be able to engage here at the church and help form communities where you guys can get together to build a community that supports you, that guides you. Because let's be honest, the singles, you guys only understand each other in many cases and what you're fighting through. Whether you're widows, I mean, you guys need some other fellow widows around you and widowers around you so you can feel that pain. Divorced, similar things, guys. We need to gather around and be connected. If, if you're interested in helping us in that, grab one of the orange cards. Let us know. We want to be able to begin to meet that need because it's a huge need when 50% 50 of, I think, of our population right now is single in some case. It is a big deal. So now... That's the friendship stuff. But I really want to then move into this thing. Great, Greg, I got a great amount of friends, but I still can't have sex. And I got all this emotion and drive and I want to. What do I do with that? It's a great question. That's actually the central question, isn't it? Stop beating around the bush, Greg. Get to the point. So I'll beat around the bush a little bit more, but you'll see why in a second. The single in our world needs to deal with the sexual desires. That's the, that's the amen right there. If you feel that, you can amen. But moving forward... Paul wants to dive in. And this, don't read that first, but let's look at what Paul's going to say. Go on. We're going to move past into chapter 7. He starts in verse 6. Paul's interesting. Remember, Paul's single. Paul's not a married guy. He's a single guy. And he wants to kind of communicate to us what's going on. So he starts on, he says, now as a concession, he's speaking about marriage and all this stuff, and, and guys having self-control over their passions and their desires for sex. And he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Hey, I wish all you guys were single. That's what, his, that's what he just said. He thinks it's better. So all the single people in the room go like, cool. We got Apostle Paul on our side. Yeah. Did you hear him? You know, so because it kind of fights that cult of marriage that's out there right now. But he says, hey, I wish all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God. One, from, uh, one of one kind and one of another. And it starts here. He, he, he then moves on. He says, to, un, to the unmarried then and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise control, self-control, they should marry. And that's where this first, he says, you want to deal with the sexual desires, get married. You say, easier said than done, Greg. You don't think I've been trying that one? Yeah. And understand in his culture, it was easier because it was called an arranged marriage. You went, I want to get married. Hey, mom and dad, I want to get married. And they would go, okay, we'll go find somebody. And they bring you together and you got married. It wasn't about this romantic attraction and let me get to know you. That happens in the 1800s. That doesn't, that's not a known prior to that. So our, our culture's radically different with the romanticism and all that stuff that's gone on since the 1800s. And so we need to realize it is different. But let me just speak to this for a second. Some of you have been dating for a very long time. Some of you are even cohabiting, which is not a safe environment. Trust me for a marriage. But the bottom line is you can't control yourselves. You've been dating that long. Get married. Get married. 
You need to get married. In fact, if you want to get married, there's a sense that you just got to give a lot of time to it. But again, that would help if we could get singles together so you could meet people and that kind of stuff. But the point is, there are three basic tips I want to help you with in this sense of getting married. And these, these may be helpful. I didn't make these up. These come from other singles books and stuff like that. So, um, but I agree with them as a married person. I want to share you guys with these three important tips. The first tip is this, that you should be a good friend. Give, don't take. We already talked about friendship and why it's important. But being a good friend is one of the best keys to having a great marriage and to finding a good person. You see, it's interesting when women, are, when women are asked what is the most important thing in a good marriage and they have a good marriage, do you know what they answer? They say friendship. Now, when men are asked, do you know what they say? What do they say? No, they say friendship. <laughs> gotcha. What's on your mind? <laughs> no, he's, he's literally saying it's friendship. Men and women both say a great marriage is based on friendship. I'll tell you what, that's true for me and my wife. I mean, let's face it, sex only lasts about, what, 8, 15 minutes, somewhere in that zone? Other than that, it is, it is friendship. It's about doing life together. It's about talking through things. It's about trying to attack problems together. It's about looking at four children and going, you got this one, I don't got, you know, that kind of, that's friendship. You need to have a good friendship. You know how to give good friendships. You know how to listen, communicate. All of this stuff is friendship and all comes towards becoming a kind of person who is very good at, at being a meritable in a sense. Okay, so tip two, stop looking for the one. It's not a biblical concept. There is no one perfect person for you. In fact, me and my wife, we love to say in, in premarital counseling, we say, hey, listen, two people can get married to anybody. It's just how many problems do they want? It's true. Put any two people together, whether they're, they can get married. It's just how difficult do you want that marriage to be is going to be dependent upon how well you know each other and how much you're willing to accept their sin in their life because you're putting two sinners together. See, the one actually came from a story by Plato. Back to Plato. Who is this guy? Messing up our relationships. And we call all the other ones platonic relationships, whatever. Anyway, Plato had this story. Basically, he's talking about this Greek mythology. And Greek mythology said when humanity was made, they were made with four legs, four arms, a face on each side, and all male and female genitalia. They were one being. And they were getting so powerful, the gods were freaked out. They're like, what do we do? And Zeus goes, hold on, I got this. They're all, destroy him, Zeus, destroy him. I said, no, 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 no. What we will do is we will chop them in half. It will be less powerful, and we will gain more worshipers. They went, you're a genius. So he chopped all the humans in half and made men and women, and ever since then, men and women running around looking for their other half, their better half. That's where all that language comes from, the one. You're all a bunch of Greek mythologers. That's what you are if you believe that stuff. No, there's not a one out there. This wonderful, you complete me. No, that stuff from that movie that none of you should have watched, right? The, uh, no, I'm just kidding. The, the reality is that the, the completion, it comes from Jesus Christ. He's the one that completes the brokenness in our soul. He's the one that we image. And when you have a deep, intimate relationship with Christ, you're completed. And then when two people get married who are complete, you produce a whole. Instead, you end up with a half person, a half person coming together and it makes a quarter of a person and it's really messy. The reality is intimacy comes when you know Christ and he's filled your soul. And so tip three then is see marriage as singleness and singleness both as paths to holiness, not happiness. 
the surprise ending in marriage for people who have longed for it for so long is that it's not really as good as you thought. It's hard. It can be rough. And you're going, why is this so hard? Because God intends it to make us holy, and holiness makes us happy. And you can be holy either as a single or you can be holy as a married, but both will make you happy. And so let's not seek to be completed by marriage when you seek it. But let's learn what God has for us and allow it to be about his story. Now, you're saying that, okay, so Paul says get married, but let's move forward. He continues on, or actually it said the second condition is to live with how God's gifted you. Live in the condition that God's gifted you in. Notice what he said back in verse 6. Now, as a concession, I say this. I wish that all men were as myself, but each has his own gift from God. One of, the kind, one, of one kind and one of another. He's saying, look, singleness is a gift, just like marriage is a gift. They're both from God's hand. It's like a charisma. That's the word there. He's saying it's like a gift of the Lord from the Spirit for the common good of the church, for the kingdom. It's not about our lives. It's about God's kingdom when we're Christians. And he says the common gift that's given to the single is this idea that you're single. In fact, he expands it here in verse 32. Now, some people are like, oh, this horrible gift. Thanks a lot, God. Well, okay, I get it. And some of you have not asked to be single. Some of you have not asked to be divorced. Some of you have not asked to be in the situation that you're in. But what you need to see is that God has intention for this. He's not punishing you. He is actually seeding you with opportunity. Paul, the single guy, states this. I want you to be free from anxieties, verse 32 says in chapter 7. The single or the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So he's got a singular focus. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the man, the, uh, the married woman, is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And he's saying, guys, I want you to have this deep devotion to God. You are free, unlike, unlike married people who oftentimes are running around going, hey, um, I want to have time with God, but the house is messy. My wife likes the house clean, so I better get up and go make sure I help her with the dishes and stuff because otherwise I look like a selfish guy sitting there only with the Lord. I got this, you've got this reality going on. Let alone if you have children in that mess. I mean, some of us are just begging for a four-minute devotion in our lives. Let's be honest, some of us who are married. It's like, I had a great spiritual life, got married. It's been dry ever since because there's just not a lot of time. Some of you, that's your reality. What he's saying to the single man or the single woman is he's saying, you've got awesome opportunities here. So you've got this, you've got, you've got the right to let your house be messy because you want it to be so you can spend time with God. You have the right to go and spend time and get away for a retreat and just make sure people know you're gone so they're not freaking out. You know, it's, it's this reality that you have a freedom that honestly married people don't have. In fact, they would envy. And we don't always say that kind of stuff, but that's the truth. And so as a single person, you've got this awesome ability to impact the kingdom unlike how married people do. You say, how do you know that? Well, Jesus is on your side. He was single. But he's married to the church. Yes, but he chose to be single on earth. Lived an incredibly effective, powerful life as an image of how single life should be lived. John the Baptist, single. 
Paul, single. How do you think he had enough time to write most of the New Testament? (laughs) When you start looking at the men of history in church history, this is one of the shames. Singles, you guys need to study church history because all the people have impacted the world. His name, the first big name that comes along, his name is Origen. Single guy. Stepped up to the bat after Origen was gone. This guy named Augustine. Single guy. Wrote some of the biggest theology. Most theology sits on Augustine's shoulders. Up comes another guy named Aquinas who writes this huge, giant theology he thought was trash because he got so into God that one day he had a vision of him and realized, I stink. Single. Martin Luther's most productive time period of his life was when he was single. The biggest impacts in the Christian church have been by single men and women who have given their whole devotion to God. You have that ability. Don't believe the lies of this culture that you've been given singleness so you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, because it's your life, so you better live it. It's your body. Enjoy it. These are the fringe benefits. No, no, that's worthless when the day of your death comes and you stand before the reality of what I really accomplish, but God gives you the opportunity to accomplish the greatest things for the kingdoms because he's gifted you with something in this time period called singleness. Don't sell yourself short. You're not second-class citizens in the kingdom. You're considered the dynamic powerhouses of the kingdom who can do great things in this church and in the kingdom in general. Don't sell yourself short. With that said, why in the world does that help fight off sexual desire? Because you have a purpose. Trust me, when you're bored, Pornea is waiting in the corner in our culture to give you something to do. And it's destructive. But that leads us to the third one. We need to fight for chastity. I don't have to race through some of this stuff. But I want you guys to hear it because you need to. First, we're just going to move past this verse in First Thessalonians. just tells you that idea. Fight for chastity. First, you need to know there's nobody pure. Look at how Jesus put it. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so... Nobody's pure but Jesus. We all got that down? Everybody's lusted. Everybody's desired this sexual desire apart from marriage, okay? So this myth of you must be absolutely pure, just put that aside for a second. Give yourself some forgiveness and grace because God loves you. He's given his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. Accept it, be healed. That doesn't mean we go run off and go do this stuff. We already see the damage and everything, and Christ doesn't want us to do that. But this is to point out that you don't have to beat yourself. I'm not pure. Yeah, nobody is. We good? Capiche? All right. But second, need to know this. Self-control comes from God, not from yourself. So many of you guys are white-knuckling this. You're like, I'm not going to sin here. Ah! going, where's my self-control? It comes from God. It doesn't come from you. It comes from intimacy with God. In fact, the scriptures are very clear. The fruit of the Spirit. He says, walk with the Spirit, which means have an intimate relationship with God. Know Him well, and this fruit is born in your life. Notice the last fruit. It's, it's kind of half and half. It says, gentleness and self-control. Wait a minute. Self-control doesn't come from inside? No, it comes from God, from the out. As you learn self-control from God, you're able to battle That's what I love about the AA world and stuff like that. They remind you, and they got this from the Bible, that it is, the first step is surrender. It's the claim, I can't handle this. I can't do this on my own. I don't have it inside of me. It comes from God. And that's key. If you're gonna fight your sexual desires, you gotta gotta have an intimate relationship with God. 
moves on. The big and reminder of this, the biggest sexual organ in your body is your brain, not what's between your legs. Very important to note. Because a lot of us think if I just control my sexual, no, control your mind. If you're watching all this junk, you're putting porn in your head, or you're, you're watching these American whatever movie junk and all the frat boy stuff that comes out and tells you, hey, life's a party and it's so funny. <laughs> Check out how they abuse that girl. <laughs> that was Pee Wee Herman. That's bad. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> the reality is you don't want to end up like Paul Rubin. You want to end up like Christ. The biggest sexual organ in your body is your brain. What are you putting in it? As we're reminded by the single man, Paul, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Garbage in, garbage out. What are you putting in? If you're watching Game of Thrones because you enjoy the scenes, watch out what's coming out of your life. There's tons out there that will attract you and draw you in for other reasons, only to input things that'll make this fight way difficult. But are you allowing the word of God to transform your mind? Are you spending more times viewing this stuff than you are in the word of God? Having that deep intimacy that you've been given time for. Let it change you. Let it shape your mind. Know how temptation works is the next point. Be mindful of what you're thinking and know what your desires are because your desires are what fool you. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? Satan. No, his own desires. It's your own desires that are going to get you. And in this world, it says, run with your desires. Watch it, because that's where temptation comes from. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth, brings forth death, all that stuff we listed at the beginning of the message. It's waiting in the corner to pounce on us, to overpower us. We have to watch our desires. Note them. And so then you need to utilize accountability and confession. You can't do this alone. That's why the community of friends is important and why your deep relationship with God is important. See, if we confess our sins to Jesus, to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But you know what? Some of us aren't confessing. We're going, God, I'm sorry I screwed up. Confession is to say the same thing, to note that this is wrong and I've done this willfully and, I'm, and I'm, it's not a mistake, it's sin. I have rebelled against you. That's repentance. That's confession. Not, oh, whoops. You got that one? Cool. We need to take this seriously because it's about cleansing. In fact, some of us have been cleansed, but we're not healed because we need to confess to each other. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. You may be healed. The reality here is this is what accountability is about. When you have those strong peers, you're able to open up because you have a commonality and say, this is my struggle. This is my fight. I confess this to God. I'm confessing it to you. Hold me accountable. And your friends should know if you're struggling with pornography, struggling with uh, erotica writing or whatever it is, masturbation, you name it. You're struggling with this because you need to tell them, I've got this selfish pornea sex thing going and I don't want it. And I need to fight. And you got to fight together. You got to confess together. Press forward together. Community's huge. Whether you're single or married. Finally, you need to build strong boundaries. Want to how strong? Here's how Jesus put it. If, you're right, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better to limp in this life and run in the next than to run in this life and die in the next. And his point is simply this. If you're not willing to, to put a, a lock down on your, on your phone because it's your main place of temptation and failure, 
If, you're not, if you don't have filters on your computer, guys, we're, we're just we're messing ourselves up. There are plenty of great filters and systems out there. We're not living in the 90s when those things didn't exist. We have accountability software, filter software. You have the ability to have friends who can keep you accountable. Tell them what you're struggling with, where you're struggling with it. Have a no-go zone. If you're struggling, ladies, with some guys hitting on you in the office and you know they're married, you need to tell a friend now. You need to let it go. And don't go into that area. You need to keep yourself from pornea. Flee from it. And that happens with strong boundaries and accountability bound together along with confession, prayer, and these pieces. Now, I could go on on this one. Probably need to cover this off a few more times in the history of our church, I'm sure. But I just want to encourage you guys that what, uh, if you're a single, God has set you apart, not, not for sexual desires, but for the impact of this world through his kingdom. And what an opportunity you have and that the devil wants to distract you. I pray that you would find what God's called you to do and that you would do it with all of your heart and that where you're struggling, you could find help. And in fact, that's this last piece for you right now. Everybody actually in this room might be struggling in some way with this, but some of you are especially in need of help. Erotica or pornography or even sex may have just captured you. You don't know where to turn. It's not safe to talk about it in your small group. Can you imagine that one? And then you just, and so you have this opportunity now to be free. We have a group called Safe Harbor. It's a recovery group. They want to be able to offer you the opportunity to start fighting this battle. And here's what I need. You have these sheets on, on, the, on the seats around you. And I need everyone to grab one. Everybody. If you don't have one, um, Mike, can you, there's a few out in the back. Can you grab them? Throw your hand up if you need one, because here's the rule. I'm pulling my pastor, you must do this card. card. So, um, and the reason why I need everybody to do this is because guess what? If, if I only just go, hey, if you're struggling, fill out the card. Nobody's going to fill out the card. Because there's, a, there's a, a shame involved in our society with this. Especially if you're sitting next to your spouse. And why are you filling that out? You don't want to know. You know, it's like, that's not good. <laughs> so everybody's going to fill it out. And you'll know, you can put your information on there, your name and, your, and a contact, one way to contact you, and you're going to mark, I need help or I don't need help, and nobody's going to look at what other, everybody else is marking. You're going to fold it in half or drop it in the offering. Even if you don't need help, tell us you don't need help. That way, those who do need help can mark honestly on their card without feeling like everybody's staring at me. So... According to the book of Hebrews, submit to your leadership. So here you go. This is the first time I'm ever going to pull that out. And this is for the aid of those around you. Do it to serve your brother or your sister who's struggling, please. I'm going to spend a minute here and I'm going to pray. Um, but as you guys get that opportunity to fill that out, please, nobody looking at those things, but get them into the bag. We want to be able to let somebody from our Safe Harbor team contact you to, to ask you what kind of help you might need. It may be that, hey, you're, you know, your spouse is struggling. You don't know what to do. They've got all that kind of aid. So, Lord, we just, I lift up uh, this the congregation who can do this while we're praying. And I ask that you would just bless them in this decision to get help. God, empower the singles in our church to be used in a great and mighty effective way for your name. And God, as a church together, we might come together for, for the sake of holiness, whether we're married or single, so that you would be glorified and honored in our hearts. We praise you for the opportunity to be honest and real. And we pray that you would use that confession time for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.